That song has so much truth in it. First of all, it reminds us that God rolled back the stone and raised Jesus from the dead. That's the greatest act in human history. But then it reminds us that sometimes, even as followers of Christ, or maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, and we pray today would be the day of your salvation. But we feel like we're too far gone. Or maybe, as a Christian, you don't feel too far gone, but, but maybe, many times, you feel like you've dug your own grave. I mean, let's face it. We mess up, we fail, we sin. And we feel like we deserve to be buried. The disciples experienced that. Many times in the life of Christ, but particularly at the death of Christ, and sadly, even at the resurrection of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, use your mobile device. Um, the text will be up here in a few moments. John 20 is one of the four accounts of the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead in time and in space. This, this really happened. So if it really happened, it is the most important event in human history. If it didn't happen, it's of absolutely no significance at all. But for all of us here this morning, I need to say one more thing. One thing, the statement that Christ rose from the dead can't be, is moderately important. It's either the most important fact of life you'll ever have to address, or if it's untrue, it's absolutely irrelevant and unimportant. Let's go home. But sadly for so many people, It's really how they live, only moderately important. In John 20, John presents a very unique picture of the first Easter. All the other accounts focus on Easter morning. John does that, but he also focuses on Easter night, and that's what's so unique. The only one that focuses on Easter night. And I must tell you, he does not paint a very pretty picture. The disciples are filled with unbelief, fear, doubt, anxiety. They're shut down, basically, confused. And doesn't that describe some of us today and all of us at some time? But here's what's unique about the picture that John paints. Though initially what seems front and center in the painting are the disciples and what a mess they are. If you look harder and longer, something much more wonderful jumps out. I'm going to illustrate that with a painting. Don't put it up yet. I want to set it up. 
I just over the past 30 years have gotten into art. <laughs> I just didn't get it for a long time. But even now, I must say that these folks that go to a museum and they go, and they're sort of oohing and on and like shaking their head. Okay, I don't get that. Okay, like what they do with the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. Now, that's my speed. You you wait in line for two hours. You only get 40 seconds and then they say you're done. It's like, okay, I'm good with that. 40 seconds, Mona Lisa, smaller than I thought. (laughs) But I'm learning over time that if you do pause and gaze and reflect, there are details of the painting that you would have missed. And sometimes those details... (laughs) are the most important part of the whole work. Rembrandt, in 1636, painted Genesis 22, which is the sacrifice, or the attempted sacrifice, of Isaac at the hands of his father Abraham because God told him to do that. Now, that seems crazy to us. Why would God, who said, do not commit murder tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, but Abraham believed God, trusted God's word, gave him unquestioning obedience. And so here's the painting. This is in uh, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. I've had the privilege, uh, every time I've taken a group there, which has been probably 15 times, I've had the privilege of taking groups to the Hermitage uh, and, and to see this painting and many, many others. The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt is, is also in the Hermitage. Now, I want you to notice what pops. What jumps out at you? Well, it's clear. It's, it's Abraham's face. It's the angel saying, whoa, stop. It's, I mean, look at Abraham's hand. Talk about the heart of a father. I don't know why God would have me do this and I know my son has got to be really confused. And I'm not even going to let him watch. And then the knife was on its downward stroke. With such force that when the angel stops Abraham's hand, the force of the knife keeps going. And it's falling to the ground and the sheath that you can see. Amazing painting. Keep looking. Now, here's what happens when you study a painting. You can't see. I need to get closer. (laughs) I can barely see it and I've seen it. If you look at the sheath, it's a sheath, right? I keep getting confused between sheath and sheath. Anyway, you know what I mean. Okay, I can see it real clear here. If you go to the left of the thing that holds the knife, let's do that. You might see a little yellow dot. And then sort of at maybe 7 o'clock, down to the 
left of the of the yellow eye, there's a white sort of circle and and then a black nose. So you can't see it probably from where you're sitting. And you can barely see it with the painting. But you can see a ram's horn. And the ram is caught in a thicket of thorns. So even in the midst of Abraham's darkest moment, God's already present. And God already has the solution. And of course, that is a picture of the gospel. Because God sacrificed his own son. And there was no angel that stopped it at the last minute. And the ram in that picture became the sacrifice for Abraham and Isaac. And the ram in our picture is Jesus sacrificed instead of us. Because we should have all been Isaac without an angel stopping God's hand from slaying us. So why all this introduction? To get us to look more deeply at God's word. Because what is immediately obvious on the surface isn't often the point of the painting. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying you need to be a Bible scholar to read the Bible. You need to have a surrendered heart. And you do need to read it. Or be in a church that preaches it. But in the painting that John picks to paint for us, what's immediately obvious is the failure of the disciples. I mean, let's face it, the passage that I'm about to read, the, the, the best known fact of the passage is Thomas. And who's Thomas? Come on, in all your minds, who's Thomas? Doubting Thomas, right? We all know that. But if we continue to stare at the picture that John paints, we actually see the ram in the thicket who appears to the disciples and changes everything. So I don't know what God's calling you to face this morning. I don't know how you feel like you may be too far gone. And I don't know what graves you feel you've dug for yourself. But I do know that Jesus is the main point of your picture. And if you turn your eyes upon him, you'll have hope. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's word. And follow along as I read John 20, verses 19 to 31. This is God's word. On the evening of that day, there's the unique picture, the first day of the week, so Sunday, the first Easter, 
By the way, you want apologetic for the Christian faith? Why does the church meet on Sunday? Why did a group of religious Jews who would never think of changing the Sabbath from Saturday, why does the church meet on Sunday? The, the only reasonable explanation is the resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. It's true. It really happened. This isn't some fable. This isn't some fairy tale. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. We'll get to that in a minute. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, that's next Sunday night, Jews counted their days inclusively. So it was just a week later, but they call it eight days. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. You bet he was. You talking about FOMO? I mean, I bet he didn't let those guys out of his sight. I'm going to visit my mom. I'm going with you. Although the doors were locked, we'll talk about that. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. By the way, the strongest confession and profession of Jesus of Nazareth in the entire Bible. Why don't we remember Thomas for that? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet has believed. You know what he's talking about? Us. We've not seen the risen Lord like Thomas and the disciples did. Jesus says, blessed are we who have not seen and have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
that he might call you out of the grave. This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is the very word of God. And he gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to have hope when we are tempted to feel by our circumstances that we're far too gone and that we've dug our own graves. Let's pray. Father, use the remaining time to teach us about our loving Savior in the midst of our sin and failure and brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, we're going to cover three titles of Jesus. We're only going to cover one this morning. So, you want to hear the rest of Easter, you've got to come back next week. We're going to cover just one of the titles today as John paints the picture in the midst of what is front and center, the brokenness of the disciples, to get us to focus on Jesus, our mighty God. So the first title, the only one we'll look at this morning, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Remember that old song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. By the way, that used to be someone only my generation heard. Lauren Daigle, the same woman who sang Still Rolling Stones. Well, that was Carly Green. But the woman who originally sold it, although she doesn't sound as good as Carly Green, sings it. Right? Come on. So she remade, she did a remake of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. So now, the rest of y'all who are younger than me, you can appreciate the song as well. So we're going to look at turning our eyes upon Jesus. Again, keeping in mind Rembrandt's picture. First of all, our merciful God. So in verse 28, Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. I've already told you it is the strongest profession of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus in the entire Bible. And doubting Thomas is the one who utters it. And in the picture John paints of Jesus as God, he presents Jesus as the merciful God. Now, I want to be really careful here because I've seen things in my own life and I've seen things in other people's lives that I need to address right at the start. We tend to be okay with Jesus being the merciful God. But we tend to think he's different than the Father. The Father's just more tough, stern. So like, if we're talking about going before the Trinity, it's like, give me Jesus every time. Because the Father, I just feel he's a little stiff and, and uh, he, he's, he's, he's just going to really let me have it. Folks, first of all, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit as the triune God all share the same glory and characteristics. And the reason Jesus came to reveal the Father's mercy because the Father is merciful. Like, Jesus didn't say, tell you what, Father, I know you're mad at these people. I'll go and I'll show them mercy And then when I get back, I'll sort of put you in a headlock. And you're going to have no choice because of the work I do to be merciful to these people. No! 
Jesus came to do his work because the Father's heart is filled with mercy. And so Jesus simply reflects the heart of the Father. Well, let's look at the various ways mercy is presented in the picture. Again, the temptation is to focus on the disciples' brokenness, failure, and sin. But John paints that picture so that we'd keep looking at the painting so that we'd see the ram in the thicket who is Jesus. You with me? All right. 19. Verse 19, the doors are being locked for fear of the Jews. Now, the, the verb tense in the Greek is they were locked and maybe they were going to stay locked. When anybody going to get in that place? Why? Because they were frightened. They were scared. They were petrified. Why? Because the authorities had just killed Jesus. Who's next? Jesus' followers. See, we can celebrate Easter because we know the rest of the story. We know the whole painting. The first disciples were shattered. They were crushed. They'd lost all hope. And even though the women had already told them that Jesus raised from the dead, they thought the women were just crazy. And so they're huddled together, a panicked mess. When Jesus had told them all this was going to happen. So let me ask you, what's your view of God when you feel that you've completely ignored God's word? And you are acting in fear, anxiety, and unbelief when he's told you to not lose hope and keep the faith. Well, my tendency is to think either A, Jesus won't even show up because I don't deserve him to with my kind of brokenness and sin. Or if he does show up, he's going to show up with guns blazing. He's going to be angry. He's going to set me straight. But that's not at all what Jesus does. It says in the text that Jesus came, stood among them, and said, peace be with you. Could there be a more comforting statement that Jesus could make? They are the very antithesis of people experiencing peace. And yet Jesus comes. Now what we learn here is a very important principle. See, I think when I'm not living the way I ought, that Jesus stays away and is sort of disgusted until I get Mac together. But what we find here is that Jesus is actually drawn by his mercy to broken people and to failing sinners. Now, it's a good thing because, folks, that's all we are. If you're waiting to get your act together for God to show up, then in your paradigm, he's never going to show up. Because how arrogant do you need to be 
to think that according to God's unchanging word, you ever have your act together. So if Jesus doesn't come to broken people, if he's not drawn to sinners, we actually don't have any hope. See, the disciples had a choice at this point. I mean, they'd all deserted Jesus. Peter denied him. They were all cowering in fear. Were they going to focus on their fear in the painting? Were they going to focus on their shame in the painting? Were they going to focus on their guilt in the painting? Were they going to focus on their circumstances in the painting? The situation in the painting? Or were they going to see the ram in the thicket? And actually rest and receive the mercy of God. Folks, he knows your heart. He knows your fear. He knows your anxiety. He knows you're a control freak. Whatever, fill in the blank. And I'm here to tell you, the God of the universe is not disgusted by you. His heart actually runs to you in mercy. And then look at verse 20. More mercy. Jesus shows the disciples his hands inside. Why does he do that? Thomas isn't there. The one who demanded to see his hands inside isn't even there. So why would Jesus voluntarily, without being asked, show them his hands inside? Well, the two levels of answer. One is rational to prove he, he was alive from the dead. And, and look, that's one of the beauties of Resurrection Sunday is to engage people in conversations that, hey, the statement that Jesus rose from the dead is either ultimate importance or it's irrelevant and of no importance. But the one thing it can't be is moderately important. And one thing you can't do about the resurrection is yawn. And so at one level, Jesus is saying, hey, here's proof. Here's evidence. Here are Christian apologetics, reasonable defenses for the faith. I am alive. Sadly, however, most Christians only live at the rational level. And guess what? God is not a brain on a stick. And neither are you as a Christian supposed to be that. What Jesus is doing in showing him his hands and his side is he's saying, you don't get it now, but more important than rational evidences for your faith, I want you to understand these wounds you're looking at, that's why I can be here. These wounds plead mercy for you in Christ all the time. This is why I run to you in your brokenness. Right here. Now, to know that I'm on the right track here, look at verse 21. 
the text says, he said again, a second time, peace be with you. (laughs) Jesus is not really interested at this point in shoring up their rational defenses for belief. There's a place for that. Look, we are also rational beings. (laughs) Sadly, I'm at times too rational. But Jesus is saying, I'm actually concerned about the state of your heart. And I want you to experience peace and hope and joy in the midst of the darkness of your circumstances, situations, sin and brokenness. Now listen, don't you think for a moment I am saying God is soft on sin. We're not talking cheap grace here. But I found that the Christians I deal with that really do want to love Jesus, they're not after cheap grace. They're after assurance that mercy could still be theirs when they feel like they've dug their own grave. Just like the song says. And so Jesus says again, peace be with you. And now we come to Thomas, verse 24. He's not with them on that first Easter. By the way, we don't know why not. He may have thrown in the towel. He may have thought, it's over. It's done. I'm going back to whatever I did before. We don't know why he wasn't there. So imagine how he felt when Jesus shows up and he wasn't there. You ever miss something that wasn't FOMO, but you missed it because of sin? I have. So how will Jesus respond? And, and then, I mean, what audacity. I demand to see for myself the wounds of Christ and I demand to touch him. And if he won't do that, I'm not going to believe. I'll tell you how I'd respond to someone like that. <laughs> it would not be very good. It's like, fine, see you later, dude. Now, thankfully, Jesus runs after people like that. And then he says, well, first of all, notice in verse 26, it's eight days later, the doors are still locked. <laughs> Let's forget about Thomas for a moment. The disciples saw Jesus alive from that. He walked through a locked door and said, see my hands inside. And what's so funny is the Greek in the text is precisely the same in verse 19 and verse 26. It's exactly the same. The doors having been locked, the tents meaning they were locked and they were going to stay locked. Jesus came and stood among them, same words, and said, peace be with you, same words. So on the one hand, same words, why? Why do you repeat yourself with your kids? 
They obviously haven't learned, right? They're not listening. That's what's going on here. The disciples haven't learned a thing. Nothing's changed. I've been a Christian for 40 years. And probably what's most painful to me is there are certain things I struggled with as a non-Christian that after 40 years of walking with Jesus and being a pastor, I, I still struggle with. I still worry. I still am impulsive with my tongue. It's like I've tried. I can't shut up. I am sometimes consumed with fear. I was like that as an unbeliever. It's like, it's almost like, God, I don't want mercy. I want change. God says, maybe what you need is more mercy. Maybe that'll change you. You ever thought that, by the way? You ever thought that what might change you might be more mercy? And so the disciples are struggling with the same old sin. And Jesus still meets them. Still comes, doesn't stay away. Still stands with them. And still says, peace be with you. I'm not sure I would have done that with the disciples. And now we get to Thomas. The one who who demanded of the king of kings, unless you do it this way, I'm out of here. Have you ever said that? Not in those words, but have you ever said that to Jesus? Unless you do this this way right now, I'm done. And how would Jesus respond? He not only shows up, he's not even angry. No, don't get me wrong. God is still holy. There's a sense in which his holy nature is angry at sin, all of our sin. But, but guess what he does with it? He remembers the cross, and that's why the pain of the cross was not the nails. The pain of the cross was, in fact, the anger that all our sin deserves, and it was unleashed on Jesus. So Jesus shows up and says to Thomas, Peace, brother. All is well. And then, verse 27, put your finger here. You asked for it? Okay. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand Place it in my side. See, Christ is willing to meet us where we are, not where we think we should be, and, and not where others think we should be. By the way, if you've been wounded by the church, will you accept my apology? If you feel like the church has not been a merciful place for you, It shouldn't be that way. But again, I just said, Jesus meets us where we are, not where we should be. And so Jesus meets broken churches. And maybe if you experience mercy, you can express it as well. 
Lamentations 3 says that God's mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. You know, the fact is I've struggled my whole life as a Christian with God's mercy. I just, there's a parable where one of the guys is given talents, but three guys are given talents. One guy makes 10 more, is given 10. One guy makes five more, who was given five. One guy's given one and he goes and hides it. And we found out why. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. So I hid it to make sure I didn't fail. Well, I'm a man that tends to see God as a hard man. I guess my painting would be something like this. God is the one running away from me in the woods. And my job is to catch him like he's a leprechaun. I mean, I really don't see God as a leprechaun. I'm, I'm painting the picture, right? And, and I'm the one that's tripping and falling and getting caught in brambles. And it's like, well, if, if you can catch me, fine. But if you can't today, maybe you will tomorrow, but just keep trying harder. See, that's not actually God at all. The picture John gives us of Jesus is that we're running away from him and God is chasing us in his mercy. You know, 23rd Psalm, Shepherd Psalm, Lord is my shepherd. The last verse, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I was at a silent retreat this week for a few days. And Jim Branch, the one who wrote the blue book that we're going through together as a congregation for our devotionals. He said, Bob, have you ever noticed what the Hebrew of that word follow is? (laughs) All of my pride wanted to say, yeah, you bet. I taught on it. I had no clue. And he said, that word means to like hunt to hound you in a positive way. The mercy of God will hound me, hunt me, pursue me all of the days of my life. When's the last time you felt like that about God? That his mercy will hunt you all the days of your life. I don't know if you feel too far gone. I don't know if you feel like you've done your own, dug your own grave. But the painting John presents is instead of being obsessed with your brokenness and your sin and your failure, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth that we tend to focus on in our paintings will go strangely dim. And the light of his glory and grace will become brighter as we see the lamb in the thicket. It's an oldie but goodie, but I've asked Jason to come out and actually lead us in that great song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And as you do, 
Realize the ram is already in the thicket. He already is looking at you as you turn your eyes upon him. And if you've not done that in a very long time, it's okay. Do it today. If you've never done it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. I promise you, if you do that, you will be amazed at the power of God's mercy in your life. Your life will change. I'm going to tell a story next week as we finish this little mini Easter series. I mean, it's only appropriate, right? Jesus showed up eight days later. We're going to do the same thing. Thomas was forever changed by the mercy of God, and you can be too. Let's all stand out of reverence for God, but also to hear the beauty of his blessing. Think about that. Talk about mercy. God actually doesn't want you to leave without receiving a blessing. And by the way, it's not my blessing. God actually promises to do this. So will you receive it? And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now.